Join the fastest growing EU agency. Frontex! It's been the butt of dark jokes and a source of outrage for human rights campaigners. It's been the subject of a European parliamentary inquiry. The European Border and Coast Guard Agency, better known as Frontex, is arguably the EU's most controversial agency. Today, we hear how investigative journalists have held Frontex to account, raising serious questions about the conduct of an agency tasked with policing the EU's external borders. I'm Timothy Large from the International Press Institute in Vienna, and this is the IJ for EU podcast. It was really a doorway into, into a totally different order of, of scrutiny on Frontex. We have human rights violations that happen almost by design. Denn europäisches Migration Flow Management bedeutet Human Rights Outsourcing. For me as a journalist, it was the first time working with a satirical joke. You could actually see the people on, on the dinghy, um, there were 20 plus people. From allegations of complicity in human rights abuses to evidence of clandestine meetings with unregistered arms lobbyists, Frontex has faced an onslaught of unflattering headlines. In this episode, we take a behind-the-scenes look at two ij for eu investigations that have thrust Frontex and its director, Fabrice Legerie, into the spotlight. This is not normal, that there is no normality and that it's a scandal what is happening. Whenever it's confronted with some of their actions, their first gut reaction will be to just deny and move forward. A stream of different pieces of information began to leak in from inside Frontex. Multiple investigations were launched. The European Parliament set up a working group to, inv to investigate what was happening at Frontex. And finally, we began to get the kind of scrutiny for an agency with this sensitive a role, which it should have been the case in the first place. With a budget the size of the GDP of Moldova, Frontex's remit as Europe's border sheriff is expanding. By 2027, it will have its own standing corps of 10,000 staff, plus a rapid reserve pool for deployment in emergencies. Many see a mismatch between the agency's hopped-up approach to irregular migration and the desperate vulnerability of people fleeing war, poverty, and persecution. Frontex is Europe's border and coast guard agency, helping to manage migration flows and respond to cross-border crime. Alles klingt nicht so schlimm mit einem niedlichen skandinavischen Akzent. German listeners will recognize the voice of Jan Bomermann, presenter of the satirical news show ZDF Magazine Royale. Here he jokes that things always sound better when voiced with a cute Scandinavian accent. Cross-border crime, migration flow management. 
Millions in Germany and beyond tuned into the show last year. It portrayed Frontex as an agency operating outside the law, complicit in illegal pushbacks of asylum seekers at sea and hosting lavish dinners for arms lobbyists, and then lying about it. Frontex spent 94,000 euro on a dinner in Warsaw. Bormerman's humor is unashamed editorializing. Yeah, it makes for compelling content, and spoiler alert, we'll be playing a few excerpts throughout this podcast. But his assertions drew on the revelations of fact-based investigations supported by the IJ for EU fund. In the second part of this podcast, I'll talk with journalists behind Frontex at Fault, an investigation that relied on open source intelligence to expose wrongdoing by Frontex at sea. But first, let's talk to two people behind an investigation known as the Frontex Files. One is Vera Delia Hotko, at the time a freelance investigative journalist and now head of research at Fragdenstadt, a German NGO specializing in freedom of information requests. Welcome to the show, Vera. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. The other is Luisa Izuskwiza, formerly working for the Corporate Europe Observatory in Brussels and now also a researcher with Fragdenstadt. I sense a bit of a theme. Welcome, Luisa. Hi, thank you very much. Great to have you both on the show. Now, working with journalists in Austria, Belgium, Germany, Greece, and Italy, you showed that Frontex met repeatedly with arms manufacturers keen to sell the agency's guns, planes, high-tech surveillance equipment, and even blimps. Frontex then lied about those meetings. Luisa? Yes, that is a, a very good summary of our investigation. Um, what we uncovered with this research was First of all, that Frontex had indeed lied about its interactions with lobbyists and with industry actors. They had claimed years ago that um, they didn't have any of these meetings and the documents that we obtained and the analysis that we did proved them wrong. And it did show that they do meet on a very regular basis with lobbyists and with industry representatives, most of which uh, belong to the defense and security industry, to discuss products and what they call solutions um, to border control. And what we um, uncovered as well was this relationship that's being formed and that has been crafted over the years between these corporations from the defense sector um, and Frontex. And it, it's something that we, with our research, labeled um, sort of a border industrial complex um, in reference to the military industrial complex that um, is known in the US, which basically means that you have these corporations from the defense um, and security sector becoming very close with Frontex and always working together to advance border control in the EU and uh, stricter borders and stricter migration policies uh, throughout the EU. And why is that a problem? As the agency charged with protecting Europe's borders, perhaps it isn't surprising that they'd be working with providers of, I don't know, planes, surveillance equipment, that kind of thing. Why is it controversial? I think in a way you're correct in saying that it's not surprising, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be concerning to all of us. I think a lot of it and a lot of the concern at the end of the day comes to the amount of voices that are being seeked and heard by Frontex and the fact that 
human rights are completely absent from these meetings and these conversations and the approaches that are being discussed to border control. And we have here an actor, which is Frontex, whose work has a very heavy impact on the human rights of people who are also in a particularly vulnerable situation and that encounter Frontex and encounter borders when they are at its at their at their most dangerous moment um, in their lives. And the fact that in this context, when uh, we have an agency that has so much power, so much resources, um, and so much responsibility, the only people who are being invited to the table are arms companies or surveillance companies or defense companies who have only profits in mind. Um, this is very concerning. And we can see the impact of it from the tone of the conversations that uh, we've read in these documents where the impact on the human rights of people are completely absent. Even when we're talking about guns or biometric surveillance, we never hear voices that might counter the conversation saying, actually, we shouldn't be purchasing um, these solutions because they will put people in danger. And I think that is the main source of concern here. It's just we only have two voices from two actors that agree with each other and no one there is raising a flag saying actually this shouldn't be happening because this is going to create more danger for people who are already um, suffering, for people whose rights are already endangered. So essentially you're saying there's a total lack of a human rights perspective in the policing of Europe's external borders. I think that has become very evident, not only with our investigation, but of course with other investigations such as the, the ones that also came out through this fund. I think human rights are severely endangered at, and disregarded at Europe's borders and Frontex has a lot of responsibility when it comes to this. And of course, when we talk, for instance, about building certain systems such as surveillance through the use, for example, of biometric data or facial recognition. We have human rights violations that are more visible and I guess um, more tangible, like pushbacks, for example, that have been um, revealed. But also we have human rights violations that happen almost by design, which is when you build a border with uh, surveillance that is so invasive, this is in a way it's it's a human rights violation that is less visible, but it's still equally aggressive. And these are the solutions that are being discussed in these meetings, which again is extremely concerning because these are technologies that have been heavily criticized by many human rights actors that have been actually called to be banned by even the European Parliament. And yet they're part of the conversation and no one is there to object to these. Now, the ZDF Magazine Royale show cited your findings, and you even launched a joint microsite making public all the documents you gathered. Let's listen to a snippet of the show. Could we have some uplifting music?
Frontex ist die fastest growing agency Europas. Und natürlich brauchen wir naturally our 10000 new Frontex police officers need something they can use to shoot at women and children at the border. In self defense. So it's entirely understandable that Fabrice Legere wants more and more weapons for the boys in blue on his outlaw strike force, which is why he is secretly meeting with the weapons lobby. Well, sort of secretly. Working with the NGO Fraktenstadt and the corporate Europe Observatory, we discovered that when Legere blows into his police harmonica, the arms industry is happy to show up for dinner, since they know that the spread will be fabulous. Frontex spent 94,000 euro on a dinner in Warsaw. Vera, you actually worked as a consultant on this show. It's quite unusual for investigative journalists to work with satirists. Did that give your investigation an extra edge? For me as a journalist, it was the first time working with a satirical show. I was working with some TV shows before, but not with such a broad audience. And I think this show, satiric in a way, and this show especially, is a good way to make such things understandable. We could have also just published just another story about the Frontex files and it would have been um, something that would have reached a bubble that is um, that is looking into this topic 24-7. But with the ZDF Magazine Royale, we could produce a show that is showing the basics, why these Frontex files matters, what is the problem with the agency, what has changed over the years, who is influencing the agency. Now, I've seen the show and it's quite powerful. It doesn't pull its punches in showing the absurdity of an EU agency that is arguably up to its neck in allegations of overstepping the mark, meeting with arms manufacturers like Glock, Heckler and Koch, Zigzauer, Airbus, and even others such as the Angolan Interior Ministry, Serbia, Kosovo, Belarus. And all to do what? To defend Europe against some of the most vulnerable people in the world. There's a kind of dark humor to that, isn't there, Vera? Definitely it is. And um, that's what kind of the show was trying to show. I mean, I, I think it's a really pit. It, it's a fact, as well as I think it's so bad that it is a fact. But I think the audience is sometimes too much used to bad news when it's about the US external borders and migrants facing a lot of human right, rights violations at the US external borders when they're trying to cross them. We tried to find a new way to bring this topic in the public discussion. And yeah, f from my side, it was really interesting um, to work as a researcher, as an investigative journalist with a satirical author who in the end kind of um, shows you even more the absurdity of this topic because he's looking at it with a more kind of funny way. And then when you're so much into this topic, you're sometimes... Um, losing the focus and he's showing you again that this is not normal, that there is no normality and that it's a scandal what is happening. And Airbus. And Airbus. Airbus suggested that Frontex purchase blimps for monitoring refugees from the air. Blimps, the fax machines of the air. If you bet on blimps, you're sure to succeed. What could ever go wrong? And what has been the response from Frontex to your findings? Luisa? 
Yeah, I think Frontex for a long time kept repeating that they do not meet with lobbyists. And another way they were explaining it was that they do not attract the interest of lobbyists, which, it, yeah, it's a bit of a surreal statement to give out when we had in our hands over 100 documents that basically detailed their interaction with industry lobbyists for the course of three years. But you know what comes next? Nein, Fabrice Legerie, aber do you know what comes next? I show you, here. This comes next. When Frontex If Frontex doesn't want to publish information on his secret dinner parties with the arms lobby, then we'll do it ourselves. Here are the summaries, presentations and catalogues from meetings Frontex held with the European armaments industry between 2017 and 2019. Now, anyone who cares about small arms, dirty deals and blimps can see for themselves. We're dumping the Frontex files so everyone can take a look at frontexfiles.eu. Eventually, they, I think through their actions, they were forced to retract this statement because they were uh, forced by the European Parliament to create a register of their interactions with industry actors and with lobbyists and to start proactively publishing information about the meetings they held. But I think for... A long time, Frontex didn't even see what the problem was with them meeting these actors and with them stating that they hadn't actually met with lobbyists, which I think in any case is is quite telling about the accountability problem that this agency has, which is not exclusive to the issue of lobbying, but just an agency that is used to so little oversight and so little transparency as well that whenever it's confronted with some of their actions, their first gut reaction will be to just deny and move forward. And they have quite a lot of trouble with just admitting any wrongdoing. But admit wrongdoing they must. It's worth noting that a lot has happened to make Frontex more accountable. Last year, members of the team were invited to address the European Parliament's Frontex Scrutiny Group. And that group wouldn't have existed at all if it weren't for the journalists behind the next IJ for EU investigation we're going to talk about. Frontex at fault. This was an investigation conducted in 2020 and led by Lighthouse Reports, a Dutch non-profit that steers complex transnational investigations. Lighthouse Reports collaborated with Bellingcat, the Netherlands-based investigative journalism outlet known for open source intelligence and fact-checking. It also collaborated with German news portal Der Spiegel, German broadcaster ARD, and Japanese broadcaster TV Asahi. To give us a look under the bonnet of this landmark investigation, I'm joined by three journalists from Lighthouse Reports. One is Daniel Howden, Managing Director of Lighthouse Reports. Great to have you on the show, Daniel. Another is Klaas van Dijken, Director of Lighthouse Reports and leader of the project. Welcome, Klaas. Thank you so much. And last but not least, Bashar Deeb, an open source intelligence investigator. Thanks for being here, Bashar. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the investigation, I guess the question is, why Frontex? What made you want to go after this EU agency in the first place? Daniel? I think what we need to think about here with Frontex is that until recently, this was a relatively obscure uh, EU agency. 
But given the size of its budgets and the trajectory of spending um, on Frontex, and what I would say is the agency's success in positioning itself as the answer to what has been quite intense anxiety in European governments over the issue of migration, then this kind of scrutiny was massively overdue. If you're going to become a huge operational agency and you're going, your presence at Europe's external borders is, is going to be a, become a cornerstone of, of migration policy, then you need to expect the kind of scrutiny um, that comes with with spending that kind of public money and playing that kind of role um, with vulnerable communities on the move and also presenting yourself as an, as an arbiter of, of what's really happening at the borders, which is, of course, is, um, is an area where there are hotly contested events happening constantly. So in our minds, Frontex was overdue this kind of, of, of scrutiny and something that they, they should be expecting given the role that they play. Well, in a second, we'll get into the revelations of your investigation. But I mentioned a few minutes ago this quite extraordinary consortium of media organizations. Tell me a little bit about how you put this consortium together, how you worked, or what was it like working on such a, a cross-border collaborative effort? Perhaps a question for Klaus. Yeah, it's, it started really with that we started looking into into pushbacks in the Aegean. So people on the move were seeking asylum, tried to seek asylum in, in Greece um, and were pushed back by the Greek authorities on the Aegean and left left adrift on, on life rafts. And after we, we did these investigations, uh, we were approached by, by media partners uh, across Europe to, to work with them and to help them to, to tell that story. Because Lighthouse Reports, what, what it does is that we, we um, I think, offer a quite, quite a unique way of working. We set up teams across countries and let them work together. And the unique thing about Lighthouse Reports is that we don't publish ourselves. Lighthouse isn't platform. So our media partners, they, they publish and they reach the audience. And the other thing is that we, that we are able to, uh, to provide these media partners with, uh, with specialists like open source investigators, but also um, money trails and, and data specialists to, uh, to, to do these, these kind of investigations. In a nutshell, before we get into the how of it, what did you reveal? One of the controversies with Frontex is that the big budgets that we talked about, those are um, spent on everything from thermal imaging cameras to Coast Guard vessels that are brought in from other member states, uh, drones, uh, other forms of fixed wing air surveillance, helicopters. So they've got a, a lot of kit. And yet our reporting told us already that in this area, which is where all of this surveillance technology is deployed, that there are pushback operations happening. So these are both interceptions and people who've been detained on shore in Greece being put onto life rafts and, and dragged out to sea, that this is all happening in front of all of this technology. So we found, we found it highly improbable, implausible, that Frontex wasn't actually able to see everything that was happening in what is a relatively small sea area. What we were able to do and what the, the key findings from this investigation, we were able to show what Frontex could see, where their personnel were stationed, because at the starting point of this, they, they wouldn't even let us know exactly what the assets, what their fleet, so to speak, was. So one of the first things to do was to establish 
what assets did Frontex have deployed in the Aegean? Where did they come from? Where were they positioned? What could they see? And then from there, to map that against the pattern of the activities that we could see and and to establish that they were, in fact, witness to, and as we ultimately established, complicit in these operations that they had previously denied that they were even aware of. And when you say they were complicit in pushback operations or witnessing pushback operations, what in concrete terms does that mean? We're talking about people out at sea in little dinghies on potentially rough waters, Frontex there and their vessels. What exactly was, was going on? At some point, we, we found a video online uh, where we could see a, a large vessel from, from the Romanian, uh, from the Romanian uh, Navy provided for the Frontex mission at the Aegean. And this this vessel, what we could see was um, a small dinghy in front of the vessel, and you can you could actually see the people on on the dinghy, and um, there were twenty plus people who were interacting with the 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 people on the vessel, and then the vessel at high speed sailed away from from the dinghy, but then later came back creating waves, and this is a known technique also from the Greek Coast Guard in order to push people back at sea. It's literally pushing back by creating waves. Other techniques are, are towing people people back and then, and then leave, leave them in, in Turkish waters. But in this instance, it was, it was a Romanian vessel from Frontex uh, pushing those, those people back. But the video, of course, um, at the at the high sea, uh, were at sea, and therefore quite difficult to to prove that where this was happening, and also that this that this was happening during a Frontex mission. Daniel, I just wanted to, and, and I will step back. It's just to, to, to help make the point, make it clear for for people who are approaching it for the first time. Is there's really two aspects to this. One is to take all of the alleged pushback incidents that we're aware of and to build a timeline with those and to gather as much data as we can on those. And then the second part was to map out as much as we could of the movements of the assets we're able to identify. And then you basically place one over the other and that gives you a starting point for further investigation of specific incidents. Basha, over to you. Uh, so, yeah, basically, it's uh, fair to say that uh, this investigation was um, largely based on uh, open source techniques. Uh, so uh, we started by, uh, let's call it phase one, by building a database of pushbacks that would, uh, in practical terms, mean obtaining uh, data from uh, organizations like Alarmphone, which operate a hotline for people on the move. These data include uh, videos sometimes uh, audio um, tracks, but uh, most importantly to us in this investigation were the geographical data. So uh, that would mean the coordinates of a dinghy at a specific time. So what we did is that we built a database of these incidents with the coordinates, the timing. We also used some of our uh, previously uh, really detailed reports uh, and other media reports as well. Uh, once we finished phase one, we moved to phase two. We started building a database of Rondex assets this, this was something we couldn't obtain through official request, so we had to rely on open source data. And the way we went about this was to firstly go to the uh, websites of police departments, like in Croatia, Romania, Bulgaria, and other Frontex countries, 
um, because sometimes when they deploy a vessel, uh, they issue an announcement saying that uh, this specific vessel will go to uh, on Frontex mission to, to Greece and stay for a few months. But beside that, we also uh, relied on ship spotters. Um, so, for example, one of the ship spotters in, in Turkey uh, lives close to the Bosphorus uh, Strait, uh, where all the vessels from uh, these Black Sea countries uh, had to pass from uh, this really narrow straits in order to reach Greece. And this is where a lot of uh, pictures for these vessels were taken and gave us like an indication about when they were um, arriving to Greece and when they were leaving. But so when you also- say, sorry to interrupt, but when you say ship spotters, you're talking about kind of hobbyists who like nothing more than to sit by the sit by the sea and take note and pictures of passing vessels and write down the numbers on them and post that on the internet. Is that is that what we're talking about? Yeah, uh, it is exactly what uh, you had just de- described. Um, there is a big uh, ship spotter community um, on Twitter uh, and on other social media as well. So yeah, beside uh, the, the ship spotters, we also would uh, use websites uh, like Instagram and try to search by uh, port locations in the Greek Aegean islands to, to see, for example, if someone had taken this kind of selfies uh, to see if we could identify any front experience vessel in the background and this is how we finished phase two uh, and built this database of Frontex assets. So um, after that we we uh, went on and obtained uh, navigation and flight data for the Frontex vessels and assets and basically moved to phase four where we put all this data on an interactive map so we could browse that by date. Uh, we could see uh, what vessel was in this area and uh, how uh, close or far was it from a specific pushback and um, so we could claim that for example this uh, Portuguese vessel was like three kilometers away from the pushback at a given time and uh, with all of the, uh, this kind of technology and the radar that these vessels are equipped with uh, they should have uh, been able to spot this pushback and hence uh, reported. So um, after that we, we also obtained more videos for example, the one that my uh, colleague class just described uh, with the Romanian vessel doing these dangerous maneuvers. This was one of the cases where the Frontex uh, asset was like directly involved in a, in a bad practice, in a wrongdoing, if you like. And the problem with that video was that we had to prove that it was taken on a specific date so we could link it to, to the pushback. And... Um, Luckily, that it, it was um, basically taken by the Turkish Coast Guard and we had to verify it. So the, the Turkish officer who was filming uh, went on and filmed uh, the radar of the, of the ship. And that was in the same uh, video that showed the dangerous maneuver. So there was like no stop. It was not edited. And um, on the radar, we could see uh, a vessel of, of the NATO a NATO vessel called uh, Berlin. And unlike the Frontex vessel, which had turned its transponder off, the NATO vessel was transponding its position. So what we did is that we overlaid the position of the NATO vessel on the uh, data uh, of the NATO vessel that we had bought, and it was exactly a match. And this is how we were able to chronolocate that video and prove that it was authenticated. It's fascinating. So you really had Frontex banged to rights. I mean, <laughs> irrefutable proof that they were there and that they were involved. What was the response? How did Frontex respond to your allegations? Well, this wasn't our first um, Frontex investigation. We had 
we'd been involved in a, in a series that came out with The Guardian, with Korrektiv and with uh, Spiegel in Germany um, the year before. And Frontex's response is, is quite telling about the agency itself. They, they respond angrily. They often follow up with threats for some kind of legal action. Their disclosures under freedom of information laws are, are often very far short of, of what should be the case with an EU agency. And their response in this instance was to, to, to deny what we'd, what we'd actively um, proven. Um, but behind the scenes, the managing board of Frontex um, had serious concerns. The European Commission had serious concerns, um, and they and a blame game began. Frontex essentially criticised the European Commission, said that some aspects of their operation and the mission was the fault of the Commission. Um, the Commission began to get very frustrated with Frontex itself, and a, a stream of Different pieces of information began to leak in from inside Frontex. Multiple investigations were launched. The European Parliament set up a working group um, to to, inv- to investigate what was happening at Frontex. And finally, we began to get the kind of scrutiny um, for an agency with this sensitive a role, um, which it should have been the case in the first place. Class, I think I'm right in saying you were invited to give evidence before that European Parliament. Um, working group or scrutiny group. What, what was that experience like? It was it was a good experience, but also an experience. Well, it was it was a good opportunity to to tell in detail what we what we found and to also have the opportunity to show the people the, in in the European Parliament the the kind of evidence that we that we gathered and that Bashar described, along with visuals, and to answer some of their their questions and their their concerns. And do you get the sense that this investigation has actually forced Frontex to kind of put up its hand and say, all right, yeah, all right, fine. I note that Frontex has issued a pledge to reform and bolster its rights monitoring mechanisms. I understand that they have a commitment to investigating all of these kinds of incidents, and they have a a fundamental rights officer who is supposed to do that, and who even even concluded internally that the agency may have been implicated in some of these fundamental rights violations. And of course, the European Commission itself, which is part of the management group of Frontex, announced very clearly that Brussels will not tolerate pushbacks. Is this a kind of sea change in the culture of Frontex? And and would you claim responsibility for that? I think it's important to acknowledge that any one investigation, the most it can do is is build momentum and then attract the attention of of other media and set the ground for sustained coverage. And that's very much what this did. It doesn't take one story. It takes a prolonged series of stories. We went on to work with many of these media partners on countless follow-ups on Frontex. It, It led to whistleblowers coming forward to us from inside the organization to tell us about problems in, in ranging from kind of workplace bullying to, to nepotism to strange procurement contracts. It was, it was really a doorway into, into a totally different order of, of scrutiny on Frontex. And I think it's important to say that it also opened the door on what is inherently a very contradictory setup here. You've got significant European member states who want migration flows reduced and are willing to turn a blind eye to how that gets done. But Frontex's 
promise and the reason it's been so successful in building its budgets and empire building as an agency is that it always promised a kind of dry technical solution to this issue. And what we could see on the ground was that this migration flows and the reduction of migration flows wasn't happening in a dry technical manner. It was happening in in a very disturbing way with violations of fundamental rights. So in so much as anything has changed, quite a lot of the veils have fallen from what's going on. That's how I see it. Thank you very much indeed for this insight into the investigation and congratulations all on all you achieved with this collaboration and, and of course with many other pieces of work. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to the three of you. Thank you very much to Daniel Howden, Klaus van Dijken and Basha Deeb and uh, best of luck with all your future reporting. Thanks very much. Lovely to join you. We'll be back soon with another inside look at the makings of a cross-border investigation in the public interest. Until then, take care and keep holding power to account. <laughs> <laughs>